You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We are one hour away from the televised debate over electoral reform. BC's top political leaders will face off here on Global BC and on CKNW Radio. Premier John Horgan, who wants a change to proportional representation, versus Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, who wants to keep first past the post. Much more on what's at stake coming up a little later. But first, an urgent warning from Vancouver police. The man convicted in a high-profile child abduction case is now living in Vancouver and poses a significant risk of harm to young boys. Back in September of 2011, Randall Hopley abducted a three-year-old boy from his home in Sparwood. He kept the boy for four days before suddenly returning him physically unharmed. Hopley pleaded guilty to abduction and other offenses and was sentenced to more than six years in prison. Last November, he was denied parole after the parole board determined he was still likely to harm a child. Now, despite the fact that Corrections Canada has deemed the 53-year-old a high risk for violent and sexual reoffending, he has completed his sentence and been released. Aaron MacArthur is live in downtown Vancouver with the details about the police warning. Aaron. Yeah, Chris, uh, Randall Hopley was released into the custody of a halfway house, and today the Vancouver police have already had a meeting with him, putting him on notice that his actions will be under close scrutiny for the foreseeable future. And while Hopley is a threat to young boys, the VPD will not tell us where he is living. Instead, saying everyone in the region needs to be mindful of the fact that he is in the community and we all need to be watching his activities. We're not providing a specific geographical location where people should be concerned. It's citywide, and I would even say into other municipalities because we've got a great transit system. Uh, he may have an address today that could change tomorrow. So rather than pinpoint it, we want everyone to have a look at the, his photo, familiarize yourself with him, and if you see him in violation of any of these conditions, call 911 immediately. Now, Randall Hopley is under an onerous list of conditions that will last for the next 10 years. He can't be around anyone under the age of 16 without appropriate supervision. He can't be anywhere near where kids might be, parks, schools, pools, that sort of thing. He also has a very strict curfew from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. And again, as, as the VPD are asking you, anyone who sees Randall Hopley and sees him in violation of those conditions has to call 911 immediately. Chris. All right, Aaron MacArthur in Vancouver for us tonight. Thank you, Aaron. We're hearing tonight from the victims of a suspected hate crime on SkyTrain that we first showed you last night. Broadcasting video of part of the assault is credited with helping police make an arrest. As Jill Bennett reports, this may not be the first time the suspect has been involved in such an incident, and one of the targets is wondering why he's been released from custody. Just hours after this video was released by Transit Police looking for a suspect in an attack on a couple on September 28th at Granville Station, an arrest was made. He's a 36-year-old uh, Vancouver resident. Uh, he was brought back to our Transit Police headquarters here. Uh, he was interviewed and he was re released later on uh, in the evening. I'm scared of trying to come after us. I don't know. That's why I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to be. The couple that was attacked have now come forward. Michael and Jay, not their real names, say they are terrified after what happened. And he got in my face making a fist. Uh, what's your problem? The two um, say things then escalated. She punched Jay's glasses off. Um, 
he striped him on his face like luckily didn't hit him properly I went to go and try and get him to stop so another uh, passenger pulled the guy off of Michael but then he's like he's like coming back and he like he's like with his fist in there and then he's like going out again and then he comes back in and then he spat in my face and said you Police confirm they are also investigating another incident on a SkyTrain allegedly involving the same suspect. We believe that mental health may be a factor here, and that's most certainly uh, will be a piece of the investigation. Michael and Jay say while they are scared by what happened, they hope the investigation will reveal more details. Like he didn't do any homophobic slurs when he left the train. I don't know if it was a hate crime. The suspect has been released with a promise to appear in court in January. Jill Bennett, Global News. It was a brief court appearance today for the man accused of killing Abbotsford Police Constable John Davidson last fall. 65-year-old Oscar Arfman appeared calm as he walked into the new West courtroom wearing a red sweater and red pants. His case has been adjourned to November 19th. Arfman's jury trial is set for late January. Constable Davidson was shot and killed while responding to a report of a stolen vehicle. Arfman is facing a mandatory life sentence if convicted. If you are still unclear as to what's involved in B.C.'s referendum on electoral reform, don't worry. That will change if you stay with us through 8.30 tonight. Premier John Horgan and Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson will debate the pros and cons of proportional representation right here in our studios right after the news hour. And as Ted Chernecki reports, if the tiny amount of ballots that have been mailed in so far is any indication, there are still a lot of undecided voters. By now, you should have received your B.C. elections ballot package, and some of them are, in fact, being filled out and sent back to Victoria, but it is a trickle. We were wondering, like, so you've actually figured this all out and you're voting? Yes, we have. My husband and I have studied it very intensely. I voted for the uh, rural-urban proportionate. Mm -hmm. That was the least terrible of the three, again, watered-down versions of STV. I don't particularly like the new. Oh, see, so you're just going to, your status quo is fine with you. It is. Only a very, very small number have voted, less than 3%, and there's only three weeks to go. It may be that voters are just taking a little bit of time to, uh, to come to terms with these issues after coming through a municipal election, uh, quite an intense one. That might be it. It may be that uh, voters are experiencing some kind of democratic fatigue, that they're tired of voting. The way this referendum is set up, it doesn't matter if 50 or 500,000 people vote. The majority wins, and that has the Guardians of Democracy concerned. I think you may get uh, really minuscule numbers changing uh, the fate of our democratic system for everyone. And uh, that's a, a big problem in terms of legitimacy. And then there's apathy. How many of these ballots are simply ending up in the garbage or recycling bins? Do you think people are just tossing these in the garbage? Yes, or? I do. I know it for a fact. It's above their, their head, so they don't want to think about it. They just don't bother voting. A lot of people are just throwing them in the garbage. Maybe I did the same. Oh, is that right? Yeah. As it happened, in anticipation of tens of thousands of filled out ballots needing to be mailed back to Victoria, someone here ordered a third mailbox to be added. Perhaps a display of renewed political accountability. Or not. Tetranaki Global News. Well, that would be quite optimistic, I think. If it was, we'll check in with Keith Baldry now in Victoria. Keith, clearly uh, a lot of ballots out there. Let's hope that's because they are waiting for the debate tonight.
Yeah, hopefully that's a big milestone for a lot of would-be voters. There's more than 3 million voters in B.C. and just a few thousand people who got their ballots in. Uh, so hopefully tonight's debate, which starts at 7, as you mentioned, are going to answer some of those unanswered questions, some of the confusion out there. I'm going to be here later in the news hour on our new set here in, in our legislature's uh, offices uh, with uh, Green Leader Andrew Weaver. We're going to be talking to him. You're going to be talking to Bill Tillman, I think, on the no side. And then we're going to be back here after the debate, uh, post-debate, with a special on BC1. Richard Zussman and I will be here with a couple of guests. And uh, we'll keep it going, analyzing what we saw and heard in the takeaways from the debate that begins at 7 right here. That's right, Keith. Much more between now and then, too, that sets up the debate. So we'll check back with you uh, before the end of the news hour for sure. Thanks very much yeah. and look forward to the post-game show a little bit later on. Right now, though, an update on that heart-wrenching story we brought you last night of a mother and her special needs daughter living out of their van. Since the story aired, we've been flooded with offers of help from people. Catherine Urquhart now with more on what's next for the family. Lily, how does it feel to be sleeping in a normal bed tonight? Oh my God! <laughs> oh, she's gonna start crying again. After being homeless for more than two months, Crystal and her disabled daughter Lily finally have a temporary roof over their heads. I'm really overwhelmed, I'm really grateful, I can't believe it. Um, I'm in shock. Me too. I did not expect so much overwhelming support. The two had been living in their van after moving from Alberta back to Vancouver, but that choice to relocate and access services for Lily didn't go well. Rents were beyond their reach. Basically, we can't find a home um, that's affordable. The prices have skyrocketed. Um, and we've been having to live in it. Uh, we eat our meals in there, we sleep in there. It's like a refrigerator at night. Some viewers question their story. I'm as legitimate as you get. Um, we came here, we tried our best, we, we did have a plan. It didn't, it didn't work, it backfired, everything took longer than it should have. It's embarrassing, it's, it's demeaning, it's like, you lose all sense of dignity, all pride. But an overwhelming number of people have offered assistance, places to stay longer term, and they've made financial donations of approximately $10,000. How happy are you, Lily? <laughs> Extra happy. Going to get home? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're overjoyed. Uh, we're overwhelmed, overjoyed. How grateful we are for everybody for their, their support and their love and, of course, their generosity. Uh, we really did not expect this. Crystal and Lily are now hopeful about the future, but acknowledge Vancouver's lack of affordability may well prompt them to leave. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And new numbers just out from the BC Real Estate Association predicting sales will decline 23% this year and rise 12% next year. That's according to the group's fourth quarter housing forecast. Economists say rising interest rates and the mortgage stress test are having an impact on affordability. Officials also say the strong performance of the province's economy and favorable demographics are expected to push home sales above the 10-year average in 2019. Well, it has been well documented how expensive housing in Metro Vancouver is, but there are areas that will take much less of your paycheck. John Waugh shows us where you can go in B.C. to get the most for your money. There's plenty to like about Langford. It's kind of like a small town feel. 
from its postcard beauty. Uh, I think a lot of people love that we're close to nature. To family-friendly perks. They have a lot more playgrounds for children. <laughs> Probably the biggest sell for this BC community is not being burdened by crushing housing debt. It's a good time to to get in and, and afford it. According to a new report, out of 20 cities in B.C., only four feature incomes high enough to afford an average benchmark-priced home in that area. Vancouver is the least affordable, at nearly $100,000 in the negative. The best case in Metro Vancouver and Fraser Valley is Abbotsford, still $15,000 short. Prince George is the most affordable, and more than $35,000 in the positive. I think it's pretty profound that it is one of the biggest challenges we face in terms of shaping our futures for our, for our communities as well as our, for our future generations. Vancouver's new mayor is in Victoria, hoping to stave off a mass exodus of young local talent looking for somewhere affordable to live. What we're starting talks with, my first meetings today as mayor, so uh, just wanted to open the lines of communication, but housing being the top priority... Experts warn unless something is done, the line of living in the red will just continue to spread outward. They may be out of that club soon enough that uh, the issue of affordability isn't just going to be contained in metropolitan Vancouver, but will ultimately spread throughout the province. Back in Langford, the dream of living without racking up debt is already beginning to fade for some. It's still too expensive for us anyway. Which means BC's unaffordability problem might soon be defined by provincial lines. John Hua, Global News. It could be the largest class action lawsuit in Canadian history. The federal government admits that for years it overcharged foreign nationals for temporary resident visa applications. Now, as Nadia Stewart reports, efforts have been launched to have those millions of dollars returned. According to this class action lawsuit, this has been going on for years. The government of Canada has been collecting more money through charging service fees for multiple entry temporary resident visa applications than they actually spend to process and make decisions on those applications. If the government is saying that they're not supposed to make money off of this and they're supposed to sort of be neutral, that they should honor that. Alan Hinton, a B.C. native, is the lead plaintiff in this lawsuit. He and his wife became concerned when they learned of the alleged discrepancy between the fee and the service provided. Visas are needed if you're from a country like China, India, Philippines to come visit Canada or work or study here. But what happened is that since 2004, the government charged too much. Richard Curland is Hinton's lawyer. He's also been researching this case of overpayment of multiple entry visa applications for 20 years. The lawsuit alleges, quote, an illegal and recoverable profit was made by the government and asks as relief, among other things, that a partial financial refund of the fees paid be given to the people who paid the service fees. That's not taxpayer money, but that of foreign nationals, totaling anywhere from 40 to $60. Curlin says internal government cost studies he obtained through Freedom of Information show it did not cost $150 to process a visa application. The fee has since been dropped to $100, but the government is still defending its actions. Their position now in court is that even if someone overpaid, we legally do not have to return overpayments. And that's a danger for Canada because the precedent will be set. If a person in Canada overpays the government for anything, the government doesn't have to give it back. Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada declined to comment on the case. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Former Conservative Caucus member MP Tony Clement is now admitting to multiple acts of infidelity. 
In a letter to his constituents, Clement says he engaged in more than one inappropriate online exchange. One led to a woman being offered money by an anonymous social media account in return for the disclosure of personal and intimate information. Clement says his actions stemmed from a period of personal difficulty and weakness. He has since resigned from the Tory caucus. A fast-moving wildfire has forced the evacuation of tens of thousands of people from an area near Sacramento, California. Fueled by strong winds, the flames quickly grew to 7,300 hectares. Some desperate residents were forced to abandon their vehicles as they fled. Included in the evacuations are a hospital and 11 schools. At least five people have been injured and as many as 1,000 structures destroyed already. The U.S. is once again dealing with a mass shooting, the 307th this year alone, according to a website that tracks these incidents. Didn't say one word, just pulled out a gun and started shooting. A dozen people were gunned down by a 28-year-old former Marine who walked into a country bar in Thousand Oaks late last night with a handgun. Among the dead is a sheriff who responded to the shooting. The gunman eventually took his own life. It's a total mystery as to what his motive could be. Ironically, dozens inside the bar had survived the Las Vegas concert shooting just last year near Los Angeles. Now Thousand Oaks, which is near Los Angeles, had been known as one of the safest communities in America prior to this. A Norwegian Navy frigate was in danger of sinking after being rammed by an oil tanker until the captain ran it aground. It happened overnight near an oil terminal outside Bergen, Norway. The 135-meter-long naval vessel has a large hole in its side and is listing heavily to the starboard side. The Maltese-flagged oil tanker was not damaged. The cause of the accident is under investigation. And a dramatic rescue of four fishermen whose boat sank in the English Channel. Two of the men were plucked from the hull of their overturned fishing vessel by a British search-and-rescue helicopter. The other two were pulled from the water by a freighter that responded to their mayday. The four were treated for exposure but did not require hospitalization. And in Health Matters tonight, more proof gender plays a big role in certain medical conditions. A British study has found high blood pressure, diabetes and smoking increase the risk of heart attack in both sexes, but much more so in women. Hypertension alone raised a woman's risk of heart attack by an extra 83% compared to men. The report authors say the findings highlight the importance of raising awareness of heart attack risks for women. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. New and amazing ways to solve a Rubik's Cube. Not just one, but many of them. Coming up right after Christy Gordon's weather forecast. Let's check in with her right now. That kid is amazing. You'll want to stick yes. around for that. I've shown my son videos like that before, and he is blown away. He tries it for a couple seconds and then goes, ugh. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> this is the morning in Abbotsford today. Chris dropped down to the zero-degree mark. You can see the frost, but it was clear there, although we, further west, woke up to a fair amount of cloud. It did clear by the afternoon hours, and this is what we were left with. Beautiful, bright fall colors. Thanks to Sam for that photo. We're in for a change, though, that's for sure tonight. This morning's low across the province, well below freezing, Very very frosty in many regions. Tonight, not quite as bad because that cloud cover is going to push in. It will bump these
these temperatures up, but it will still be below zero, and that means snowfall as this front pushes in. So this is overnight tonight. So from the Whistler region through the Chilcotins, the Caribou, Central Interior, you're expecting snowfall even at lower elevations tonight. Then that band will shift further south. Southern Interior, the Columbia, the Kootenai region, you can expect your snowfall through the morning hours tomorrow, and it will all ease off over the afternoon hours. Still a chance of flurries, but generally pushing out through the afternoon hours. Here's an example of how much snowfall you could see, anywhere from a trace to five centimeters generally across the region, and that's the case across the south as well. Now, keep in mind, the ground is still quite warm these time, this time of year, so a lot of areas like the roads and the sidewalks, that snowfall may melt, but certainly accumulations on the sides of the roads and the grassy areas, that's expected. And for higher elevations, up to 10 centimeters of snow by about noon for the connector Rogers Pass and Kootenai Pass. Coquihalla, all the way from Hope to Kamloops, could see up to about six centimeters, and Whistler Hope Princeton could see a couple of centimeters. So this isn't a ton of snow, but it will last through much of the day tomorrow. Saturday, definitely your better travel day. And this is focusing in on the south coast, where we are going to see significant rain through the morning hours tomorrow, but that freezing level will drop. Light dusting of snow likely on the local mountains, but up near Whistler, you can expect snow on the Sea to Sky Highway, and if you're anywhere north or east of Hope. Here's your forecast for tomorrow. So the bulk of the moisture for those regions overnight, pushing down into these areas through the morning hours, and we'll see that for the south coast region. Periods of rain in the morning, easing off to a chance of showers, but it clears out, and that is your weekend, everyone. Pretty good-looking weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we said yesterday, good for the vets on Sunday. Appreciate that, Christy. Welcome. Well, another reminder tonight that there is probably a world record for almost anything these days. Case in point, on Guinness World Records Day, a Chinese teenager who holds a number of records relating to Rubik's Cubes. They include the fastest time to crack the puzzle upside down. That's 15.84 seconds, if you're curious. He also solved three Rubik's Cubes simultaneously with both hands and feet in one minute, 36.39 seconds. Not sure what you accomplished today, but think about that, (laughs) young boy. All right, Squires here with a look at sports. We're kind of jumbling things up a little bit tonight because we've got a lot to talk about on the proportional representation debate side of things coming up a little later. We'll set that debate up. It starts in 27 I want to see it because then I'll learn what this is all about. Well, that's how a lot of people are in that position. Yes, so that'll be good. Okay, so uh, we'll get to the Canucks in a moment, but the BC Lions, of course, have a playoff game coming up. Lost two in a row going into this game against Hamilton, which is on Sunday morning, although the Ticats really have stumbled down the stretch as well. Now, BC's defense, a bit off its game. But some good news. The Lions could have Solomon Alamimian back for this one. We haven't seen him since week five when he hurt his wrist. So the question is, does Solly feel he'll be ready after all that time off? Um, I don't know. Obviously, it's hard to be 100% when you haven't played. But at this point, that doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to give it all I got. And you know what? When there's a will, there's a way. And I think that my instincts will take over once, you know, the whistle blows and it's time to go play. The Shaw CFL Awards finalist named today, BC Lions kicker Ty Long, the Western nominee for Outstanding Specials Team Player or Special Teams Player. Eastern rep is Ottawa kicker Lewis Ward, who hit 98% of his field goal attempts, but field goals is all he does. Long does everything when it comes to kicking for the Lions, and that's why he has a huge supporter in Lions assistant coach Jeff Reinbold. 
tie affects the game in three ways, whereas a field goal kicker, you only affect the game when you go out there to kick field goals. Ty kicks field goals, and he did that at a very high level, averaged over 83%. He's a great kickoff guy. He's got the second or third best kickoff average in the league. And then he led the league in punting on 120 punts. So when you look at that, you see a guy that can affect the, the game in three ways. And his directional punting just improved by leaps and bounds over the course of the year. I did a statistical analysis for him in the offseason. I said, you had 33 opportunities to get the ball out inside the 20 last year. You're only successful on four of them. And you watch the way he kicked at the end of the second half of the season was phenomenal. The Canucks decided to send Brock Besser home this morning to have a specialist figure out what is causing his groin problems, and that's been bothering him lately. He didn't play the other night in Detroit, and that was after he missed some practices because of it. Without Besser, the Canucks scored only two goals against the Red Wings and lost in a shootout. Tonight in Boston, Canucks haven't missed Besser as much. It's been crazy. Adam Gaudet, who grew up close to Boston, back home for this one. All right, let's see all the goals, and there will be goals aplenty. Oops. Turnover, Brock Besser scores. So that made it 1-0 Canucks. I think that might have hit John Moore's. Matt Grizzlick would tie it for the Bruins. And this would tie it 1-1. All right, so that was the score after 20 minutes. 1-1. So it went from 2018 to the 80s in the second period. It was goals, goals, goals. Patrice Bergeron off the rebound in front of the net, 2-1 for the Bruins. Then, Gabranson misses, but Erickson scores, who used to play for the Bruins. Uh, Gabranson has a four-game point scoring streak going. Okay, so it's 2-2. Then, power play for the Canucks, Ben Hutton. Nice passing here, look at this passing. Hutton in, 3-2. Ben Hutton with the wrist shot. Gaudet was in. But the Bruins tie it again. Jake DeBrusque. 3 3. And then Louis Erickson again. And the last time he had a two goal game was against the Bruins. That's a tip off a Hutton shot. Now it's 4 3. Then Antoine Roussel. All the Canucks you'd never have in your pool are scoring in this one. Roussel tips it in. 5-3. This is still in the second period. And then Jake DeBrusque again. Haven't seen Canucks games like this since Tony Tanty played for them. 5-4. And then just before the end of the second period, it's Eric Goodbranson scoring. Again, guys you would not have in your pool. But this one slips all the way through. So it's 6-4. Finally, I can show you a good save. Oh, it got louder here. Okay, great save off Marchand by uh, Jacob Markstrom. And that spurs the Canucks on. Vancouver is shorthanded. Watch this shorthanded goal. You won't see this very often. So Granlin throws the puck down the ice. It was actually a five on three. Horvat comes out of the box. Tuka Rask goes out to get it. And he doesn't shoot it far enough. And it's a freebie for Horvat. Seven, four. We got one more to show you. Oh, we're in the third period now, if you're wondering. All these goals and nothing from Pedersen yet. Pedersen 
Elias Pettersson across. Goldobin centers for Tannen. That's the goal for Jake for Tannen. And Boston has scored again, too, so now it's 8-5. Oh, my goodness. I think the last How long is this time, going on for? Uh, well, this <laughs> seems like we could be here all night the, with the goals. Uh, the last time the Canucks scored eight goals in the game, I think, was nine years ago. That is video of Premier John Horgan arriving at our global studios for tonight's debate over electoral reform. That begins right after the news hour. Shortly after that, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson arrived as well. The two are backstage at the moment. We've got a complete studio set up for you. The debate will be moderated by Linda Steele from CKNW, uh, Stephen Quinn from CBC, and it's going to be a very informative debate on a topic that might change the way we vote here in BC. Now, the concept of proportional representation can seem very complicated and confusing, but have no fear. Richard Zussman is here to explain the choices as simply and clearly as possible. When British Columbians go to the polls for provincial elections, they mark their ballots, put them in a box, and those votes are counted. But what do they mean for the breakdown in the legislature? To get a picture of what first-past-the-post would look like compared to proportional representation, it's best to look at the 2013 B.C. election results. In that election, there were 85 seats. The B.C. Liberals won 49 seats. That's about 60% of the total seats. The NDP won 34 seats. That's about 40% of the seats. The Greens won just one seat, about 1% of the total seats. And an independent won one seat. Again, about 1% of the total seats. But let's see how a proportional system would look based on those results. You have to look at the province-wide popular vote. The Liberals received the most popular vote at 44%, but that would have meant just 38 seats, not enough for a majority government. The NDP received about 38% of the vote, that would have meant 34 seats. The Greens would have received 7 seats with 8% of the popular vote. The Conservatives with almost 5% of the popular vote, they would have received 4 seats. And the Independents would have had 2 seats with about 2% of the popular vote. This referendum gives us the opportunity to bring proportional representation to British Columbia, a voting system that is fairer, it's more responsive to governments, and it gets better outcomes for people. The 2013 example is just that, an example. Let's take a look at what British Columbia is voting for in the referendum going forward. There are two questions on the ballot. The first, do you support the current system or do you want to change to a proportional representation or PR? The option with the most votes wins. And that's the electoral system BC will go with for provincial elections after July 1st, 2021. The second question asks for voters' preference for PR. Let's take a look at those options. First is dual member proportional. In this system, most electoral districts will be combined, forming bigger regions with two elected officials. Larger rural ridings would remain the same, with an MLA in that riding being elected by the current first-past-the-post system. Voters vote for a pair of candidates by voting once for the party. The winner is the candidate listed first by the party and that has the most votes in the riding. The second seat in the riding is more complicated. It would be based on how the party does province-wide. So the legislature's breakdown is proportional of the provincial vote for the party. 
This system has never been used anywhere in the world. The second is Mixed Member Proportional, or MMP. This system is used in Germany and New Zealand. There are two types of MLAs. District MLAs represent electoral districts, and the winner is the one with the most votes in that district. Regional MLAs would be elected in regions based on party lists. They would be chosen so the party breakdown in the legislature matches the province-wide vote breakdown. And then the final system is rural-urban proportional. This is another system that's never been used anywhere before. The ballots would look very different. In urban and semi-urban areas, voters would use STV, single transferable vote. Multiple MLAs would be elected in an area by a ranked ballot, and a party can run as many candidates as they would like. Voters can rank as many candidates as they would like. In rural areas, voters would use MMP. There are still lots of questions that would need to be answered after the referendum for all of these systems. What's a semi-urban riding? Will voter lists be known to the public? How many confused by the ballot package? But no one said changing our electoral system would be easy. Richard Zussman, Global News. We are just a few minutes away now from our televised debate between Premier John Horgan and Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson arguing for and against proportional representation. For a last minute preview, we brought in two people on both sides of the issue to talk about what you should watch for during the debate. And in a moment, I'll be talking to political commentator Bill Thielman, who's leading the charge against changing the system, sticking with first past the post. But let's start with Keith Baldry in Victoria and B.C. Green Party leader Andrew Weaver advocating for a yes vote in this referendum. Keith. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I mean, I'm here, of course, with Andrew Weaver, leader of the B.C. Green Party. He's a passionate advocate of proportional representation. First of all, what, what do you think John Horgan's got to do tonight to sell PR to people who might be sitting on the fence right now? I, I think, John, what he needs to do is articulate all the benefits of PR, about the good work that's been done in the last two years when parties are forced to work together. Uh, I think he needs to focus on the hope and the vision and the positive aspects of it. And I think he will, because it's, it's actually quite a, it's a real opportunity for British Columbia to show leadership in North America. You know, it, uh, backers of PR say it's going to require cooperation in, in the House. Mm -hmm. Is that an automatic? I mean, is it, it seems to me there's going to be even more work to be done if we go it, to a different model. It, it has to, there, you have to cooperate. I mean, I look right now at what the minority government is bringing us. Uh, a lot of people don't know the day-to-day the -day work that we have, We're working hard to actually ensure that we can come up with an agreement on various things. Uh, I think it's, very, it's positive because you see good public policy being put forth. You see fewer um, what's, what are called policy uh, jerks as you move from, uh, lurches rather, when you move from one government to the other, the pendulum doesn't swing. Much calmer transitions between different governments. So I, I think uh, uh, he'll, he'll do a really good case uh, informing British Columbians. Now, one of the concerns I keep hearing, a lot of people have heard as well, is there's a lot of unanswered questions, even if right. there's a vote to switch to PR. No matter what the system is, a lot of things still to be determined uh, by a legislative committee or a boundaries commission in terms of ridings, how many MLAs, what the number's going to be. Do you think that uncertainty is going to play a role? No, because right now, after every, pretty much every election, as you know, uh, ridings change. They change because demographics change. We just had a uh, some growing demographics in, in Metro Vancouver, a couple of new ridings there. Oak Bay, Gordon Head, where I am, I took a big chunk of Victoria this time. So the riding argument is really is really moot because it happens anyway. In terms of uncertainty, you know, again, just look at New Zealand, look at Scotland, look at Germany. It's uncertainty is we know what the system does. And, and, and the, 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 it's, it's again, it's a distraction because most people really what they care about is do we have a system that's going to give a, a representation, a broad representation in the legislature, better local representation, 
representation, better representation of all regions, or do we want to stick with the, with the first past the post now, which can lead to situations like we see south of the border with all the power concentrating in one, and that, that's a very dangerous situation. And finally, there's also concerns expressed. This is a mail-in referendum. Uh, You've got to get your ballots in the mail, uh, that there could be a low turnout, and that it could eventually, ultimately mean a very small percentage of British Columbians make the final decision on which voting system we're going to have. If, if it's too low a turnout and a, too low a number of people actually choose the system, does that take away any uh, legitimacy from, from the outcome? Well, there's a significant fraction of MLAs in the BC Liberal Caucus who got elected with extraordinary low voter turnouts. There are ridings in the B NBC where people say, I don't bother voting anymore because I know that that's going to be a Liberal riding or an NDP riding. So, so no, this is the system we have. It's the system where people are entitled to a vote. Frankly, I think people should vote no matter how they vote. Uh, and and the, the cards fall as they, as they will. This is democracy in action, and uh, I encourage people to vote. All right, well, thanks for being on here tonight. Uh, but we're going to have Andrew Weaver back on the post-game show, Chris, on BC1. Uh, but uh, the things you heard just now, you're going to hear on that debate, I'm sure, from both sides. Back to you. Yeah, much more to come. Thanks very much, Keith. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew Weaver. And we'll see Richard on that post-debate show as well. Now, Bill Thielman joins me, and we'll get his final thoughts before the debate. Uh, Bill is president of the No BC Pro Rep Society. Um, and let's talk, Bill. What do you think Andrew Wilkinson's strategy has to be in tonight's debate? Well, he has a fairly easy job in some ways, Chris, because we have three systems proposed. Two of them never been used anywhere in the world, as we heard earlier in the show, and the third one used only a handful of countries. And uh, there are about 36 unanswered questions. Uh, for example, the, any voter, anyone viewing tonight the debate, will have no idea what their riding boundaries would be, no idea where they might have one MLA, two MLAs, as many as seven MLAs, after the referendum and all decisions to be made afterwards. So there's such incomplete uh, information being provided to, to voters beforehand. I think that Mr. Wilkinson should really be focusing on that. What about Andrew Weaver's point, though, that there are a lot of unknowns in the first-past-the-post system that we deal with after the vote in the, in the present system? and voters can deal with that. Do you buy that argument? No. Uh, <clears throat> the usual way that we redistribute ridings is just based on minor changes around population, but we've got systems that say uh, the dual member proportion would double the size of ridings, mixed member proportion would increase them by 40%. So the voters should know exactly where they would stand and how many MLAs they would have. All those are, are very significant and fundamental details in a democratic system. They're not minor little uh, bureaucratic twinges and tweaks that you have to do afterwards. What about this issue of fairness that we hear people on the yes side use, that the present system isn't fair to people who, uh, who don't back the majority government, who will finally get a say in the proportional representation system? Well, what we have is a very fair system right now because a majority of ridings, individual, local, uh, geographic ridings, have to be won in order for any party to form a government. And that's happened with every single government we've had. And uh, the kind of local representation is one of the things which is at risk with proportional representation, which goes more to party lists and party-selected candidates, all of those challenges that uh, take power away from voters and give it to political parties. But is there an argument that the, that the other system is more fair? We've, there's an argument to be made first past the post has fairness to it, but is the other way more fair? Well, it takes away other rights that voters have, uh, such as, as I said, local accountable representation. And I don't think that people really want to see parties having even more power, more discipline over MLAs. I think that's what they want to get away from. Uh, and certainly the, all the proportional representation systems would empower parties more and, and voters less. 
Final thought, who's more motivated, the yes side or the no side? I guess we'll find out. Uh, pretty clearly, though, it's a big concern that uh, we might not be motivating either side because of the low turnout. And, of course, with no voter threshold possible in this one, as little as 10 percent of the voters could make a decision that will fundamentally change our democracy. So I do hope we see a lot more people voting. Well, we are going to find out here in about 30 seconds. Bill Thielman, thank you very much. We'll talk to you in the uh, post-game show as well. Enjoy the debate. I know you'll be watching closely. Thanks. All right, we'll talk to Bill Thielman a little bit later. We'll check in with Keith and Richard out in Victoria with their guest, Andrew Weaver, as well. We hope that you have at least a little bit of context for the start of this debate. Andrew Wilkinson versus Premier John Horgan on the benefits of proportional representation. And first past the post, you will have to make the choice in your mail-in ballot after that. The debate starts now, and we'll see you right afterwards. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.